This is Macro Horizons, episode 28, Talking Feds, presented by BMO Capital Markets. I'm your host, Ian Lingen, here with John Hill and Ben Jeffrey to bring you our thoughts from the trading desk for the upcoming week of July 22nd. And a friendly reminder to Fed officials, timing and delivery are everything. John Williams. The views expressed here are those of the participants and not those of BMO Capital Markets, its affiliates, or subsidiaries. Each week, we offer an updated view on the U.S. rates market. But more importantly, the show is centered on responding directly to questions submitted by listeners and clients. We also end each show with our musings on the week ahead. Please feel free to reach out on Bloomberg or email me at ian.lyngen at bmo.com with questions for future episodes. We value your input and hope to make this as interactive as possible. So, that being said, let's get started. It was really the first slow summer trading week we've had, and I was just about asleep, and then Williams comes out and sounds like he's trying to talk the market into the fact that they're going to cut 50 basis points. It was a fascinating decision in terms of how to communicate certain ideas and concepts to the market. While the New York Fed eventually issued a statement attempting to walk back some of the more dovish implications from Williams' comments, the fact of the matter is, all it really served to do was to increase the uncertainty going into the meeting. We still continue to assume that 25 basis points is going to be all that the Fed is going to offer at this stage. The bigger question, at least in my mind, now becomes how is the Fed going to ultimately be able to outdove even the more dovish expectations that were triggered by some of the recent Fed commentary? On one hand, the argument for a 50 basis point rate cut makes a great deal of sense, and it would be very consistent with a surprise to the market, and it would actually assist in the idea that the Fed might be one and done. On the flip side, if the Fed is limited to only delivering 25 basis points, what Powell will need to do is communicate very clearly to the market that this is only the beginning of a series of rate cuts if he wants to outdove the dovish expectations. The flip side then becomes if there isn't a dovish surprise, then risk assets will become especially vulnerable at this point in the cycle. We're reminded that the seasonals in the Treasury market remain supportive into the middle of September, and the fact that both the upcoming Fed meeting and the September meeting will be occurring in a period that has traditionally been very bullish for the Treasury market, which sets the stage for another leg lower in yields in the very near term. When we contemplate what the Fed is attempting to do in terms of recasting how the market perceives its relationship with inflation, it really breaks down into three distinct stages. The first stage is that the Fed will need to adjust monetary policy to a level 
that contributes enough accommodation and stimulus into the market and the economy that we actually see realized inflation, and more importantly, inflation expectations tick a bit higher. That's a bit counterintuitive given the strong labor market, the relatively good growth estimates, at least domestically, in the first half of the year, as well as equity prices remaining at or above record levels. The second stage, and this is the one that contains the most uncertainty, is that the Fed can actually stimulate inflation. So it's one thing for the Fed to drop rates and augment monetary policy to the point where they assume that we get a reflationary impulse. It's another thing for that actually to translate through to higher realized inflation. The Fed has been trying to do that for several years, and the fact that the inflation outlook is where it is at this moment suggests that it will be very difficult for the Fed to actually stoke inflation. And the third stage of redefining the market's perception of how the Fed will be addressing inflation going forward comes if and when inflation finally resurges. We would have to see a sustainable period of core inflation above 2% for the market to really internalize the notion that the Fed is willing to combat inflation from the downside as well. Now, here's where it gets dicey. We have seen in 2018 two distinct episodes in which 10-year yields traded above three and a quarter. They were short-lived and they triggered equity market corrections. If the Fed demonstrates a lack of interest in fighting inflation, if and when it finally comes back into the system, investors are going to need additional compensation to go further out the curve. When that happens, Almost regardless of where policy rates are at the time, that puts that 3% level in 10-year yields back on the radar, and that risks another equity market correction, spike in equity of all, tighter financial conditions, all of which circles back to the Fed and their ability to continue to provide accommodation in an environment where, frankly, they have a limited ability to continue to cut rates indefinitely. So the week began with an inexplicable rally, followed by an inexplicable sell-off, and now we're back in an inexplicable rally? Oh, that's easy to explain. Do you mean explic? Well, what we have learned over the course of the last several weeks is that as we're moving closer and closer to what has become the inevitable first rate cut of this cycle, the 10-year yield has focused on 2% as a relatively important line in the sand. To some extent, the treasury market loves round numbers, and so we're not surprised to see it's become particularly difficult for 10-year yields to sustainably trade with a one-handle. On the other hand, the notion that if the Fed is actually able to orchestrate a soft landing, jump far enough ahead of any more material slowdown, that that should be supportive of inflation and inflation expectations also resonates. So with that backdrop, we're not particularly surprised to see 10-year yields struggling to dip below 2%. But we're also not back at 225 Well, when looking at the global landscape for monetary policy, it's not surprising to see that there is some implicit cap on how far rates can back up in this environment. 
At this point, we've already seen eases from Australia, New Zealand, Korea, Indonesia, as well as India. And our baseline assumption is not only will the Fed soon join the ranks of those actively easing, but so will the ECB at some point. And with the ECB, it becomes more of an issue of what do asset purchases look like and how does that impact the shape of the European yield curve? With the ECB, they have a lot less firepower or space to move. So even if you are entering this period of a global synchronized easing cycle, it's not obvious everybody has the same outlook a couple years forward. You know, the Fed could cut slowly or somewhat quickly, but they're not going to be hitting zero in the next six months or anything like that. Not only are some of these central banks already at zero, I guess another way to phrase this is how many times could the ECB cut even 10 basis points if they really wanted to? Well, they can certainly continue to add to their balance sheet, and I think that that's the flip side. And now there's obviously a currency war story in here that the administration has been on about. But, John, as you pointed out, it's not necessarily such a aggressive move to see other central banks dropping rates, either in anticipation of the Fed moving or in response. Yeah. At the end of the day, say you're comfortable where your country's at, you're their central bank. You don't want your currency to appreciate sharply against the US dollar. That would tighten your financial conditions at a moment you don't want it. So you offset that. It's kind of an awkward, maybe currency war is a little hyperbolic in phrasing, but it's kind of the same way that the Fed cares a lot about the dollar, even though it doesn't actually target the dollar itself. Something that struck me this week was the kind of lackluster equity performance we saw that has largely been attributed to earnings reports that have not lived up to expectations. And even though relative to the past several months, it's been a pretty quiet time in terms of trade war tweets and headlines. I think many corporates are highlighting rising input costs and uncertainty around trade policy as a reason why maybe they're bringing down forward guidance. And that's why you could be seeing some of these disappointing earnings prints, which is flowing through into the equity market more broadly. Well, to your point, Ben, I think that is exactly what the Fed has started seeing. And that is exactly what they're trying to get in front of and offset. And so really, the implicit question in the current environment is, how far will the Fed need to go to offset the economic uncertainties that have already been created by the trade war, which implies that the trade war will end at some point. And frankly, it's not entirely clear to me that given the incentives of either side, that the negotiations are going to come to any compromise, at least not this year. I could very easily envision a situation where the best that we could ask for from the trade negotiations, particularly between D.C. and Beijing, is a deal that is optically a win for both sides. But at the end of the day, it doesn't do much to materially change the global trade landscape. Once we start to factor in the political aspect of it, then it becomes far more complicated because one would need to concede that the current administration intends to use a trade war as part of its platform. So does one want a deal done in the first quarter of next year to then set that up as a win going into the general election? Or do the campaigners think it's better to have that in their back pocket right before the country goes to the polls in November? I don't have an answer for that question. 
Another issue that I've been pondering is the divergence between equities and bonds, right? Are these two markets flashing very different things about the health or state or outlook of the U.S. economy? It certainly seems like the bond market is a little more cynical, the equity market a little more optimistic. I'm not sure the stories being told by the two markets are actually all that different, though. At total risk of wading into an equity market that I don't have a particular expertise in, One thing that I will look at is, say, look at the P.E. ratio. The multiple expansion has been pretty healthy. But if you flip that and you look at earnings over price, that's the earnings yield. So one thing that we look at is an expansion of the P.E. ratio corresponds to a compression of the earnings ratio. And if we look at that earnings yield, that should be composed of the risk-free rate and the equity risk premium. Well, if we then compare it to 10-year treasuries, what we see is the equity risk premium has been basically constant. If we were in a world where there was excess optimism driving a lot of this expansion, we'd expect compression of the equity risk premium. Instead, all we're seeing, this whole decline in the earnings yield is due to a drop in treasury rates. So basically, the expansion or the health of a lot of the equity performance just reflects lower discount rates. That's not the style of optimism that you're seeing in other places. And Ben, I think to your point, that meshes better with a darker outlook going forward, as well as the Fed lowering interest rates to try to sustain and extend the expansion. So I guess on net, I don't think the two markets are telling that much of a different story. It just really depends on how you look at it. Well, the other thing that I would add, and this is a different perspective, but responding to the same price action, if we think about the process of QE that we saw play out during the crisis, the objective was to first move investors out the yield curve And it eventually devolved into moving investors out the credit curve and stocks ended up being the final beneficiary. What we are seeing during this most recent shift in monetary policy is an acceleration of that dynamic. So while one could argue that a lower discount rate for future cash flows is what's propping up the equity market, this occurs simultaneously with the idea that the Fed is going to have to move beyond cutting rates and into purchasing assets in the U.S., assuming that they're unable to orchestrate that soft landing. And so just to clarify, you're saying once the Fed returns to asset purchases, that could once again act to drive investors further out the credit curve and back to the world where stocks benefit from this. But more specifically, one of the this time is different things about this cycle is exactly that the expectation of additional QE if things get bad enough. We haven't seen that before. That should help support risk assets incrementally more this time around than we would have seen in 2000, 2007. But isn't some of that already baked in? Absolutely. Something else we've been pondering is how one should expect credit to perform during an economic slowdown. Now, intuitively, if we look back over prior cycles, it would make sense that credit spreads should widen credit quality presumably decreases, but in keeping with the notion that something might be different this time because of the potential for QE, the European experience suggests that even central banks might move further and further out the credit curve. And in that context, we could see a cap in just how far credit spreads are willing to widen. So central banks, in other words, could become the buyers of last resort? Well, there are asset classes within the U.S. 
that the Fed can purchase that we don't spend a great deal of time talking about. Some people don't realize that the Federal Reserve Act actually opens up some other asset classes as expansive as, say, municipal bonds. This isn't to say that they will necessarily go that direction, but they at least have some theoretical flexibility of different policy levers they could pull if needed. And look at what the Bank of Japan has been doing over the course of the last 10 years. Alas, very consistent with the idea that all asset prices, to some extent in an environment like this, are going to move together. So we've spent a lot of time here talking about more active uses of the balance sheet. One question I've gotten in the past week is, what about the passive balance sheet normalization that's scheduled to end at the end of September? Will the Fed cut rates and allow the balance sheet to continue rolling off? Or do they deviate from their forward guidance and stop roll off as soon as they cut rates? Well, that's a difficult decision for the Fed to make. On one hand, there's a high probability that they end the balance sheet runoff when they do the first rate cut. Say, call it a 75% chance. But it's that other 25% that I find the most fascinating. Because the Fed has done such a good job of separating the balance sheet runoff from the decisions in terms of policy rates, adhering to the already announced schedule really de-emphasizes the importance of the balance sheet going forward, and that is certainly something that they would like to do. That said, the January 4th pivot by Powell, where he introduced the flexibility language for the balance sheet, in addition to patience on policy rates, has cemented the idea that the balance sheet will always be a tool for the Fed going forward. You don't think an early cessation of the runoff would trigger some credibility concerns? I think the risk is if they don't end it early, that would be a bigger credibility issue. It's one thing for the Fed to say earlier this year that it's appropriate to end the balance sheet runoff at the end of September. It's another thing to cut rates and not reassess that timeline. Though I would say it's a little bit of a different world. If you go back to January, saying flexibility was just in the context where they were in maximum speed of the runoff and they were going to stay that way until they weren't. This time around, they've given both calendar and quantitative-based forward guidance. So to deviate from that, I agree with you, it's not impossible, but it is a little bit of a steeper hill to climb than just, we're going to stop being on autopilot. Now we're going to deviate from something we explicitly said we'd do. Another question on the mind of many investors that I've spoken with recently is, what happens to effective Fed funds when the Fed drops the target rate by 25 basis points? Does effective Fed funds move in concert? Or is there a lag? And that lag would presumably be related to collateral. It'll be a reflection of the fact that dealer balance sheets are carrying a great deal of treasury supply at this point. And frankly, there seems to be no end in sight for the amount of new net issuance that the Treasury Department will need to raise. I guess my first assumption would be a 25 basis point cut in the range would lead to 25 in Fed funds. If it wasn't going to be exactly that, I could potentially see it being like 23 or 24, still pretty close to 25. They have good control over interest rates. But what it'll really be a function of is how does repo reprice? 
does repo move the full 25? Because what we've seen is a documented increase in the day-to-day correlation between repo and Fed funds. So if repo doesn't move the full amount, perhaps the pass-through to Fed funds isn't one-to-one, but it could at least keep some upward pressure on Fed funds going forward. So I have no doubt that Fed funds will reprice into the target range and not within five basis points at the top or anything, but you could see only a 23 or 24 basis point move in response to a 25 basis point cut. What do you say about the probabilities of another IOER adjustment? So this is another question we've gotten. Will the Fed do another technical adjustment to IOER in July? And some of the reasons for that have been elevated dealer balance sheets, keeping repo elevated. This has dragged Fed funds up higher to as close as eight basis points from the top of the range. But if you look at the last three technical adjustments, all three occurred once Fed funds was five basis points from the top of the range. That demonstrated behavior leads me to think that's their guidepost right now. And until we start to see Fed funds approach 245 or something like that, they're not going to feel the need to do that. That's not to say that September is off the table or later this year. It just seems that July wouldn't be the case. Of course, I said that back in April and you know missed the boat on that one. So, John, with that backdrop, how do you think the market is going to respond when the Fed finally introduces a repo facility? So it's a tough question, and uh, there are a couple points that I'd make. First, they're not going to announce it in July. That would be extremely rushed. They didn't do it in the minutes either. How the market responds is naturally going to be a function of what the facility actually looks like. Would the rate be at the top of the range? Would it be a little bit above? Is it focused more on general repo control or calendar guidance? All those caveats being said, directionally, what should happen in response to the announcement of a repo facility is a little bit less volatility in repo and the Fed having more control over the rate. If you also believe, and I do, that repo is influencing Fed funds activity, That, therefore, feeds through into less volatility in Fed funds and better control of Fed funds going forward. So it's a pretty elegant solution in order to gain better control of Fed funds. As I mentioned before, the ONRRP facility was extremely effective at draining excess reserves and providing collateral to the market during a QE period. During a balance sheet roll-off period, an RP facility would be effective at draining excess collateral and providing reserves, and then you adjust IOER as necessary for Fed funds. I don't know if that's the direction they go, but it appears that framework should be able to control front-end rates very effectively. One of the biggest criticisms that we've heard about the Fed's new direction for managing the front end of the market is that it's occurring at a time where the financial system is transitioning from LIBOR to SOFR. And with the introduction of a new repo facility, the Fed not only controls front-end financing rates, but will also effectively be controlling most of the market rates. So on net, the Fed will have a more direct influence on all financing rates and to some extent taking out the free market characteristics. I would dispute that a little bit. And one of the big reasons when I think of, say, three-month LIBOR, well, that's three-month OIS plus LIBOR OIS. So the Fed has control of Fed funds and therefore OIS. Sure, it might drift around in the range, but the Fed already controls the OIS component of LIBOR. Then the market prices the spread over the top of it. And then, of course, you fund it LIBOR plus whatever. So we're going from the spread over LIBOR plus LIBOR OIS, and then OIS. And then OIS is just being replaced with SOFR. 
And so the new spread to SOFR that people will fund at will be a risk-free rate in SOFR plus this new spread. Of course, the devil's in the details. How do you get that new spread right? And I hope people a lot smarter than us are figuring that out. Well, the first step in making sure that they get that spread right will be to put it in the context of LIBOR, not Libra. And in a more serious note, Ian, I think this question is a valid one because it introduces uncertainty as to SOFR and in general, the shape of the trillion dollar repo market. As we're transitioning from LIBOR to SOFR, the decision about if and when and how to issue in SOFR should be dependent on the structure of the repo market, which won't have clarity until this decision on the facility is done. You're right, John. The repo market is a hot topic, said no one ever. In the week ahead, the Treasury market will have several key pieces of economic data to contend with, along with another round of supply. We have the two five- and seven-year auctions which hit the market. We don't expect that the supply will materially recast the outright level of yields. However, it might be an incremental inhibition to curve steepening as the front-end auctions get absorbed. More importantly, we'll have both durable goods and the first glimpse at the second quarter's real GDP numbers. This is important because we're in the process of trying to gauge how the yield curve is going to respond to incoming information that either challenges the growth outlook or supports the notion that the Fed is truly preventatively offering additional monetary policy accommodation. So if in fact the data comes in stronger, we'd actually expect that the curve will flatten in a bit of a policy error trade simply because that reduces the probability that the Fed's going to deliver more than one or two rate cuts by the end of the year. The inverse is if we have weaker economic data, that should encourage the pricing in of additional rate cuts and further steepen the curve. There will be a point at some stage in the future where strong economic data leads to higher inflation ambitions, and that in and of itself re-steepens the curve, and it does so in a bearish fashion. With that being said, we don't expect that will be this week's trade. Rather, the dynamic that's developed throughout July we expect to remain in place at least into the FOMC meeting. We've reached the point in this week's episode where we'd like to offer our sincere thanks and condolences to anyone who's managed to make it this far. And for those kindred spirits whose dispositions will be saved by Willis Carrier's 1902 invention, air conditioning, we too are wondering why this great contribution to summer living originated in frigid Buffalo, New York. Thanks for listening to Macro Horizons. Please visit us at bmocm.com backslash macrohorizons. As we aspire to keep our strategy efforts as interactive as possible, we'd love to hear what you thought of today's episode. Please email me at ian.lingen at bmo.com. That's I-A-N dot L-Y-N-G-E-N at bmo.com. You can listen to this show and subscribe on Apple Podcasts or your favorite podcast provider. This show and resources are supported by our team here at BMO, including the FIC Macro Strategy Group and BMO's marketing team. This show has been produced and edited by Puddle Creative.
This podcast has been prepared with the assistance of employees of Bank of Montreal, BMO Nesbitt Burns Incorporated, and BMO Capital Markets Corporation. Together, BMO, who are involved in fixed income and foreign exchange sales and marketing efforts. Accordingly, it should be considered to be a product of the fixed income and foreign exchange businesses generally, and not a research report that reflects the views of disinterested research analysts. Notwithstanding the foregoing, this podcast should not be construed as an offer or the solicitation of an offer to sell or to buy or subscribe for any particular product or services, including, without limitation, any commodities, securities, or other financial instruments. We are not soliciting any specific action based on this podcast. It is for the general information of our clients. It does not constitute a recommendation or a suggestion that any investment or strategy referenced herein may be suitable for you. It does not take into account the particular investment objectives, financial conditions, or needs of individual clients. Nothing in this podcast constitutes investment, legal, accounting, or tax advice, or a representation that any investment or strategy is suitable or appropriate to your unique circumstances, or otherwise constitutes an opinion or a recommendation to you. BMO is not providing advice regarding the value or advisability of trading in commodity interests, including futures contracts and commodity options, or any other activity which would cause BMO or any of its affiliates to be considered a commodity trading advisor under the U.S. Commodity Exchange Act. BMO is not undertaking to act as a swap advisor to you or in your best interests in you, to the extent applicable, will rely solely on advice from your qualified independent representative in making hedging or trading decisions. This podcast is not to be relied upon in substitution for the exercise of independent judgment. You should conduct your own independent analysis of the matters referred to herein, together with your qualified independent representative, if applicable. BMO assumes no responsibility for verification of the information in this podcast. No representation or warranty is made as to the accuracy or completeness of such information, and BMO accepts no liability whatsoever for any loss arising from any use of or reliance on this podcast. BMO assumes no obligation to correct or update this podcast. This podcast does not contain all information that may be required to evaluate any transaction or matter, and information may be available to BMO and or its affiliates that is not reflected herein. BMO and its affiliates may have positions, long or short, and affect transactions or make markets in securities mentioned herein, or provide advice or loans to, or participate in the underwriting or restructuring of the obligations of, issuers and companies mentioned herein. Moreover, BMO's trading desks may have acted on the basis of the information in this podcast. For further information, please go to bmocm.com slash macrohorizons slash legal.